So a few weeks ago, the SLT, or the spiritual leadership team, we were talking and we were talking about ways, asking each other, Lord, where do you want us to focus in this next season, in this next while? And, and we began praying. We said, well, let's take a week. We'll go and we'll pray for a week and listen to what the Lord is saying. And, and one of the things that came out of the prayer was the, was the refugee crisis in the world right now. And so we got together and we had sort of, a few of us had different things that we sensed God putting on our heart, things, areas to focus as a, as a leadership team. And we came to uh, a meeting on Monday and, and pretty quickly we gathered around the refugee crisis and started talking about that. We started talking about the ramifications of it. We started talking about what it meant uh, in other parts of the world, what it meant here in Canada. We started talking about ways that we could respond and we were grateful that part, a large part of that conversation was around Ogwe and how we could help her. She is uh, coming here in, a, in 10 days. We also started talking about some of the fears that we have, the fears that we've heard other people express, fears of, of bringing in refugees and not knowing who might be coming, whether they are coming here, maybe even Christian brothers and sisters, or people who are coming here with evil intent, people who may be coming to Canada to do harm. So we're talking about these things, and we were talking about, well, we can, um, what can we do? How can we lead our congregation in this conversation? And so one of the things that came out of that was this, uh, this prayer sheet. And it, it's, this prayer sheet is a bit it's broad and carry, uh, covers some of the things that we were talking about. But if you see it in your, in your bulletin, just the things that we um, will ask that you would pray along with us for these things that are happening in our world right now. And we started talking about um, ways, and I thought, and, and, and I started thinking, you know, one of the ways that I can help um, is by preaching on it, speaking and, and preaching a sermon on, on refugees and, and how do we approach it as Christians, as followers of Jesus. And so I started reading, I was reading in different, uh, different Christian organizations um, who have written uh, papers or essays on, on their approach or their, the approach that they are recommending to Christians on how we approach refugees. And I was noticing that a lot of them refer to the Old Testament and uh, talking about loving the, the foreigner or the alien who is in the land among you. And I was reading those and I was thinking, you know, those, those are helpful and they are good and they, they fit. But I started thinking, but those speak mainly about refugees who are living here among us already. And I was thinking about situation about refugees who live in countries halfway around the world. How do we respond to that? And pretty quickly I was drawn to Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. And I, I didn't know kind of what to expect. Uh, I just kind of felt like that, like God is drawing me there, the Holy Spirit is drawing me there. So I went and I started reading. And reading over the, the next week or so. And, and I wanted to say that I stand before you here today as, as a forgiven sinner. Uh, reading uh, the Good Samaritan, that parable, listening to Jesus and letting it work on me. I realized that I needed to ask God for forgiveness. To ask God for forgiveness because I had heard the stories of refugees coming to Europe. The things that they were going through or refugees who were moving from one part of Sudan to Ethiopia. I'd heard stories of it. I'd read even first-hand accounts mothers talking about losing husbands and children. I've seen videos, uh, videos like Samaritan's Purse and Christians who are in uh, the island of Lesbos in Greece. And they welcome people who are coming. I mean, these rubber rafts filled with people, children, women, uh, men, older men, younger men. Just, I mean, they're piling off the sides. They're just holding on. They're all wearing life jackets. And they say that, um, I think they were saying like something like 
70 to 100 of those rafts come each day and end up on the shores. And one in seven sinks, right. So watching these videos too. Not only that, but I have friends who are refugees. People who have been a part of our church or people we knew in Vancouver, even people we know in the covenant. People from Iraq who are Christians. Brothers and sisters from Iran. Brothers and sisters from Sudan. Brothers and sisters from Chile who have come to Canada seeking asylum as refugees. I know these people. I've prayed with these people. I watched their kids grow up. And yet still I was unbroken. And true, I was praying, like, you know, and maybe some of you can relate to this. I was praying, Lord, what, what should I do? What, what could I do? But I realized that I wasn't really brokenhearted about it. Sure, I would pray. And I'd feel sorry, I'd feel badly for them, but it wasn't broken. And so I'm standing before you as a person who is learning, who is being shaped by Scripture. Maybe just a few days ahead of you. And it's interesting as I thought about the refugee situation. A cricket, sorry. Anyways, I think. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about like things that I'm afraid of as I think about refugees. And I don't know, maybe some of you can relate to this too, that I think about some of the things I'm afraid of. I mean, I'm, I'm not afraid to help people, but I'm afraid of helping people who maybe want to hurt us. I'm afraid of people who maybe who are coming here with evil intent. That's just honest. But I'm also thinking about how do we help, like how do we support people? You know, what's it going to mean to have, I think in Canada they've... they've um, committed to 10,000 refugees, which is really not that many when you talk about 11 million Syrian refugees alone, let alone Iraq and uh, Central Africa and Asia. So, but you think about how do we support them? Like, what's it going to mean for us? Who's going to care for them? It's expensive. How do we do it? So I started reading uh, Luke's Gospel and Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. And I kind of began realizing how ugly some of my fears were and my apathy was. So I came to Luke's Gospel and I started reading. And it wasn't necessarily the first place I started. I was kind of led to that passage, but I was also reading other articles. I was reading news articles. I was reading other Christians and things that they were writing, say, on their blogs or on, on the Internet. And I realized that I was grateful that God had brought me to the story, to the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because as I read, I read some people who, there's all sorts of facts. And I realized that if you had one particular view, you could, you could select those stories that fit your view. I mean, some people have really passionate uh, arguments on why we should be doing more. And we have other people who have really passionate arguments on why we should be doing less and why we should be more careful. And I realized that depending on how you feel about the situation depends on then what kind of articles you read about it. So I didn't really spend too much time in articles. I spent time listening to scripture the best I could, wondering what Jesus might have to say about this. And so if you would open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, or if you haven't in your bulletins as well, Luke chapter 10, 25 to 37. 
And listen again to this story of the Good Samaritan, this parable. So just to give a little background, Jesus has sent out his disciples and they've come back and he's teaching them. And in the midst of teaching them, it says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. <clears throat> Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Uh, Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify, justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down, to the, going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place where he, and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is a rich parable. This is an amazing story. And it's no wonder that it's one of the most famous parables of Jesus. But parables are meant to work on us. I mean, they're good stories, but they're meant to teach us. They're meant to challenge us. They're meant to take our understanding of things, the categories we have, and stretch them and flip them and to get us thinking beyond the way we already think. So I think one of the best ways we can learn from this story is to listen to it, to let the, story of the, par- or let the parable of the Good Samaritan work on us. So we begin where it begins, with an expert of the law coming to Jesus, challenging him, asking, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus replies to him, he says, what do the scriptures say? How do you read it? And he quotes to him Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He quotes to him the Shema, Hear Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he quotes to him out of Leviticus. And it's a small passage. He says, and love, the, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you've, you've answered correctly. It says right there in the passage. This guy knew what he was talking about. Not only that, but when other people asked Jesus, what are the greatest laws or what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said this exact thing. So this expert in the law knows what he's talking about. There's no question he knows. But I think part of the problem is, is he living it? Because see, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, this isn't an innocent question. Luke tells us he was asking, us, he was asking Jesus this to justify himself. So this wasn't a, boy Jesus, I, I just don't know who my neighbor is. Could you help me with that? That's not how he's asking He's asking, Lord, or Jesus, or teacher, who is my neighbor? How far do I have to help people? 
Where's the limit? Where's the edge of expectation of what I need to do? That's what he's asking. He's not trying to figure out how many people he can help. He's trying to figure out how many people he doesn't have to help. Who's my neighbor? Can you narrow that down for me? Give me just the minimum. Let me know where the line is so I can make sure I still get into eternal life. That's how he's asking. And I love it. Jesus doesn't reply with an answer. He replies with a parable. A story to teach. He starts talking with him. He says, A man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And on his way, he was attacked by robbers, by a gang of thugs. They mugged him. They stripped him of his clothes and they beat him and they left him dead, half naked and half alive. As I was reading this and I was thinking about the refugee situation in the world right now, it occurred to me that this man who is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, the man in the story, is anonymous. We don't know who he is. We don't know if he's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho because he's just finished worshiping at the temple and he was going back to his hometown to teach and to serve the public and teach his kids how to follow God. We don't know if he was that sort of man. We don't know if he was maybe even the member or the leader of a rival gang who foolishly walked through the wrong hood. We don't know who he is. And actually Jesus makes the point of, of saying this, that they took his clothes so that even in the story the people don't know who he is. See, in the ancient world, the way people knew who you were is by the way that you dressed and the accent that you spoke with. That's how they knew where you came from. This guy can't speak and he has no clothes. He's just a human who is helpless, who's been mistreated, who's been beaten and left on the side of the road to die. He's just a human. That's all we know about him. And that's all the people in the story know about him too. And as I was reflecting on this, on how this man is anonymous, I was thinking about some of my fears about refugees. Because we help people. And like, for example, it's like in Canada, we say 10,000 people coming into Canada in the next year. We don't know who they are. We don't know if some of them might be Christian brothers and sisters who is biblical, whom Christ has called us to serve and to help. We don't know if some of them are, uh, probably many of them, probably most of them are Muslim, if they're coming from the Middle East, if they're coming here just to start a family and to, to live, or some of them are coming here to do violence. We don't know. But in the story, the Samaritan helps the man anyways, without knowing who he is. I come back to that. So as the story goes, a, a priest walks by him or sees him and, and moves to the other side of the road and passes by. Then a Levite comes and moves to the other side of the road and passes by. Now, if you guys want to, we can talk all about uh, ritual impurity and we can go into that. But for the sake of the story, the important part is that these religious leaders see this man who needs help and they move to the other side of the road and they pass by. I think a similar situation might be if you saw, if, uh, if a pastor was walking down the road and saw a man hurt laying on the side of the road, half clothed and half dead, and moved to the other side of the road and walked by. 
And then an elder of the church did the same thing. See, this priest and this Levite, they're supposed to be models of religious faith. They're supposed to be models of what it looks like to follow God. They're supposed to model it for the people around them. Not just teach them about it, but live that in front of them. And they fail. They move to the other side of the road and walk by. I say this because, whether we like it or not, as followers of Jesus, people hold us to a higher standard. People expect us to lead when it comes to compassion. In fact, as I talk with people outside of the church, that's one of their first criticisms of Christians. Is that we are hypocrites. That we say all this stuff, all these things that we believe and then we don't act like it. I think some of that's a cop-out, but sometimes it's true. Sometimes I see the truth even in my own life. So as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we are called to lead, especially when it comes to compassion. That when we hear of people who are hurting, people who have been abused and need help, who are half dead, barely alive, that as Christians, we are the ones who should be leading the charge in terms of compassion. So the story goes that these Levites come and they pass by on the other side. And then in Greek it literally says, but a Samaritan. But a Samaritan. Now, we've heard this story so many times, like we already know that Samaritan's the hero. But in the first century, Samaritans were not heroes. In Jesus' culture, Samaritans were not heroes. They were the bad guys. Samaritans were the people who lived near, uh, just north of Judea, and they had similar beliefs, but significantly different at the same time. Whereas a Jew would tell you that the most important place, the place of worship is in Jerusalem at the temple. They would say, no, it's at Mount Gezerim in Samaria. And they had similar scriptures, but they also had different commitments to them. They had different ideas of Messiah. And so there was this constant antagonism between the two. There was one scholar was saying that there was even near the time of Jesus, there was a time when Samaritans came and brought bones and dumped them in the temple to defile the temple. You can imagine what that would do. Imagine if someone came in here and ruined the church, how angry we'd be with, that pe- with those people. So there's this antagonism between Samaritans and the people of, of Israel. You see it in Scripture. Oftentimes, Jews, they would, when they were traveling from Galilee to, to Jerusalem, they would walk around Samaria. Rather than travel direct route, like through the land of Samaria, they would walk around, sometimes adding a day or two to their journey, just so they didn't have to, to, to uh, see those people or to even be in their same territory. Or you hear about it too in John's Gospel, when Jesus comes to the well in Samaria. And the woman at the well, she says, What are you doing? Why are you, a Jewish man, talking with me, a Samaritan woman? Don't you realize that we're supposed to hate each other? What are you doing, Jesus? We see it through Scripture. We see this, this cross-town rivalry as a Samaritan. And so Jesus tells it to these Jewish people, and it's supposed to, to reframe or to challenge their categories of who's good and who's evil, of who's holy and who's not. Because in the Jewish understanding, it would have been the priest and Levite who would have helped and it would have been the Samaritan who would have walked around. But Jesus tells it on purpose for this reason. 
And it's interesting because he says that the, that the Samaritan, while he was traveling, he came to the man and he had compassion on him. Now, in here it says, uh, what does it say? Uh, he had pity on him, which is, which is good. But the Greek word is splognizomai, which you don't have to worry about that. But the word splognizomai, or compassion, is used 12 times in the New Testament. 12 times in the Gospels. And of those 12 times, there's one time where it's a bit ambiguous. There's, I think, three times when it's used in a parable about someone who shows God-like compassion. But the rest of the time, it's Jesus who has splognizomai compassion. So when Jesus is talking about this sort of compassion, he's talking about God-like compassion. Not just our idea of mercy, but God's idea of mercy. So this Samaritan this outsider, this guy who supposedly doesn't get it, who, who worships God wrong and thinks that the place of worship is in the wrong place, who doesn't read scriptures right, he has godlike compassion and stops and helps this man. Already the categories are starting to break down. Our idea of what's right and wrong, who's in and who's out, start to break down. So Jesus tells a story and he talks about the, the ways these people have treated this man who was traveling from, Jer- from Jerusalem to Jericho. The thieves, this gang of, of thugs, they come and they strip and they beat him. The religious leaders, the people who are supposed to act faithfully, they avoid him and pass by him. And then this Samaritan comes and he moves toward him and has compassion on him, godlike compassion. In the story in the scriptures of Jesus as he says it, he says he took the man and he put him on his own donkey. In the ancient world, people who had status, they didn't walk in front of them, they didn't lead the donkey, they rode it. They had other people lead it for him. He, he takes a position symbolic of like a servant serving this man who he has no idea who he is. And he puts him on a donkey and he leads him into an inn. Now, this sounds like just human decency to us, right? 2,000 years of distance, different culture. Just sounds like a really nice thing to do. Like, it's a good example. Be nice to people. It's interesting. I was reading a scholar. His name is Kenneth Bailey. He, he lived in the Middle East. And he studied Middle Eastern culture. And he wrote some uh, commentaries and some commentary on these particular parables. And he wrote on this one. He said, we don't understand how dangerous it was for the Samaritan to do this said in the ancient world it could have just as easily been if that, that man who had been beaten, if his family had been looking for him and saw the Samaritan leading him on his donkey, they could have just as easily attacked the Samaritan assuming that he's the one who had done it. Kenneth Bailey, this, this uh, scholar said, it'd be similar to if, if a Native American found a cowboy out in the prairie who had been scalped for brave and he'd take him and he'd put him on his own horse and led him into the nearby town and brought him into the saloon to the hotel for help you can imagine the danger that 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 Native American man would have faced the assumptions people would assume without asking any questions they would assume that he had done it so we see the risk that this Samaritan is taking there's tons of risk in this for him and he continues to do the right thing. The faithful thing. So the Samaritan takes this 
this man who he's found on the road, puts him on his donkey, brings him to an inn. And then it says he, he took care of him there. He attended to him. And the next day, he gave the, the innkeeper two denarii, or two silver coins, it says. But it, I looked it up. It's, it's basically like a day's wage. So he gave the innkeeper two days' wages to care for the man. But that wasn't it. He didn't just say, okay, good, I'm done. He said, no, take care of him and any other expenses you have, when I come back through, I will pay you. I'll reimburse you for them. And I started reflecting on this some. See, the man has, this Samaritan has basically given the innkeeper a blank check. He didn't give him any sort of of limit, you know, if it costs more than this, you know, that's all I can give you, or, you know, only do this much because I can't pay you more than that. He just says, take care of him, and whatever it costs, I'll reimburse you. Blank check. And I started thinking about it. We have no idea with the Samaritan how wealthy he is. I don't know if this was his last two denarii that he had given to the shopkeeper, and he was having to figure out how he's going to eat that day, or if he was a wealthy man and this was no big deal for him. I don't know. But it got me thinking about some of my questions about sponsoring or helping refugees. Because we don't know how much it's going to cost. We don't know what sort of impact it will have on our lives, if any at all. But I pretty quickly was reminded, convicted maybe is more the right word, that we are some of the richest people who have ever lived on the face of the earth. Us, I know, us, right here in this room. We are more wealthy than probably 97% of the rest of the world. Regardless of where your income is within this room. (laughs) We are rich. And I listen to this Samaritan, or I watch this Samaritan. And I'm convicted and I'm challenged. Because he does the right thing without really considering what it's going to cost him. And it's challenging for me to do the right thing, to help people, regardless of what it's going to cost me. But the story doesn't stop there. Jesus, um, he says to this law expert, this namakos, this person who's supposed to know the details of the law, And he says, who of the three has become a neighbor to this man who had been mugged and stolen from, who had fallen into the hands of thieves? When I read that, did you catch the flip there? Did you catch the change Jesus made? You see, the the expert in the law came asking, who is my neighbor? Where are the limits? How far do I have to go? Who do I have to help? And Jesus changes the question, not from trying to figure out who your neighbor is, but how do you become a neighbor to people who need help? Did you see that? Not how do you figure out who you have to help or not, but how do you become a neighbor to people who need help? And this expert in the law says the one who had compassion on him. And Jesus says, right, go and do the same. 
As I look at this passage, I'm convicted. I feel like I'm still learning. But I also feel like I hear God speaking to me, speaking to us. And how do we respond to this refugee situation? In this story, we, the man who needs help, we don't know anything about him. The Samaritan who helped him didn't know if he hated Samaritans. That man who was lying around, he might have had a, a horrible hate for Samaritans. The Samaritan doesn't know this. He just helps him. Similar, we don't know who might be coming to Canada. But there are people who need help. And as Christians, we are called, I believe, called to, uh, to live, to maybe to lead compassion, to be leaders when it comes to compassion. Not only that, but the Samaritan, just by helping a man, takes tremendous risks. And I know as I talk with people, as I think about it myself, I think, what are the risks of, of bringing people from, from the Middle East or from Asia or from just different cultures into our culture? What are the risks of that? But as I watch the Samaritan, he still did the right thing. He still cared for the man, despite the risks. And I started thinking about, as I was, this story is speaking to me about, well, what about support? How does, who's going to pay for it? What is it going to mean for us economically? And I watched the Samaritan, how he just cared for him. He said, do whatever it takes, and I'll reimburse you for it. His concern was doing the right thing, regardless of what it cost him. I think how much of our faith calls us to that. To not be worried about the money, but to keep doing the right thing, to keep following Jesus. I listen to this story, and it's changing the way that I think about refugees. It's reshaping. I always had the sense that we should be compassionate towards people. And as we talked in the SLT, we, we said, like, we feel like God is calling us to, to, to respond. But what's the biblical basis for that? And as I read the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, as I listened to Jesus again tell that story, I'm convinced that we have uh, a responsibility. Responsibility to lead in compassion, to help. And maybe some of you are thinking, you know, Jason, I hear what you're saying, but I don't even know where to begin. I would encourage you to begin where I think it's great for us Christians to always begin by prayer, by reading the scriptures, reading this parable of Jesus again. But don't stop there. To the expert in the law, he knew the right answers. And as Christians, I've, I mean, most of you, dare I say all of you, know the right answers. But it's living out those right answers that's the hard part that we need to encourage each other in. So we talked about ways that we can respond. One of the, one of the responses, too, that we're already working on is, is with Agwe and with Leora as they come. They're refugees from Cameroon to Greece and now to Canada. It's a way for us to be a blessing, to help, to show compassion. And maybe as a church we need to start talking about sponsoring another refugee. Maybe someone from the Middle East, someone from Syria or northern Iraq. Or maybe we need to talk about as a church of supporting the hundreds of churches in Europe right now that are just overwhelmed with people who are coming looking for help people who are coming and looking for help and hearing the good news for maybe the first time in their life. Or maybe we respond by, by supporting an agency like Samaritan's Purse 
or voice of the Mars, agencies that are at work in these places, providing relief, helping people. These are just some ideas. I'm actually, I'm interested to hear from you guys. As you hear the story of the Good Samaritan, what do you hear the Spirit saying to you? How do you, or what have you thought about in ways that we can respond? This is a great conversation. <laughs> it's Bob Day. I would, I would encourage us to keep having this conversation gracefully with each other, uh, graciously with each other, because um, there's lots of, like, you are smart and faithful people. And I know some of you see this differently, or some of us see it differently. So keep having this conversation. And, and look for, and I would say, if, if I could just ask you to do one thing, well, actually, it's a few things, but, but to keep praying, like Nicole said, read this passage sometime, or a few times this next week. Let it shape. Let it inform you. Let it uh, work on you. And then let's talk about and, and commit to maybe one way that we can respond. Maybe it is supporting with aid uh, in those countries. Maybe it is supporting with aid in this country. But let's um, I ask us to do those things. Let me pray for us this morning. Father in heaven, Lord God, we praise you for your, wor- for your word. Lord God, Jesus, I am grateful for the ways you taught, for the ways you challenge us. God, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that your word still speaks, even in uh, situations like this. So many people think the Bible is old and irrelevant. God, we see today again this morning how relevant it is. We pray, Lord God, that you would keep moving us toward compassion, that we'd keep looking how we can become neighbors to those who need help. God, thank you for this story. Please continue to work on us. In your mighty name, Lord Jesus, amen.